to Flora and Friends, your botanical cup of tea, a podcast for plant lovers of any kind. We welcome guests to our botanical tea break to explore the history, science and meaning of plants for our lives. My name is Judith Lundbey-Felten. I'm a plant scientist, university researcher and founder of Flora L Design and I'm the hostess of your botanical cup of tea. A warm welcome for a new episode of the Flora and Friends podcast. And how could I name the Flora and Friends podcast your botanical cup of tea if we would not also speak about tea? So here we go for a series of episodes about tea from its history, biology to how we use it today. Tea is a topic with many different layers, from the botany of the plant to the many ways the tea plant Camellia sinensis is picked and processed to give rise to black and white and green and oolong tea. Another fascinating side of tea is its history. Before the 1600s, this everyday intoxicant that we now are so familiar with, like coffee and tobacco and sugar and cocoa and tea, they were not at all present in Europe. But today we are just consuming them every day and they are not just part of our common diet, they are also in some countries a social institution. Like in Sweden, for example, we have fika, where we have coffee and tea and maybe some biscuits, but you have the English four o'clock tea as well. You have tea houses and coffee houses where you go and meet different people. So a lot of our life is actually going around these intoxicants, like we can call them. But back to the tea. Today, I want to take you on a time travel back to the 17th century Europe, but also Asia, and to understand how the trade and smuggling of tea led to the tea being brought from Asia to Europe and what it did to society here. With me, I have Hannah Hodax and Annika Windal-Pontin from the Department of History of Science and Ideas at Uppsala University. Anna has conducted research on the trade and consumption of tea and she has also authored a book called Silk and Tea in the North. And Annika has investigated the relationship of the Linnaeus family to tea and how Linnaeus tried to grow tea here in Sweden. So I'm very happy to have them here today. I hope you will enjoy the podcast. If you do so, feel free to share it and to give it a positive review so that more people can find it and can go with us on the travel back to the times when tea wasn't so common. I say very welcome to Annika and Hannah and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome, Annika and Hannah, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Did you brew yourself a cup of tea? I did, or my husband did, actually, <laughs> for me. I did this morning. Mm -hmm. Always. Was it a green, a black, a different one? Um, I Black tea. Me too. I, I very much prefer black tea. I'm, I'm team green tea. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> And I like to have the variations of many different green teas, but not so much with flavor in it. It's, it's just like how it was picked and, uh, yeah, and processed. Let's go into our subject for today. We, we are talking about tea. And I thought to direct some questions to Hannah in the beginning to bring us back to the time when tea was new or was establishing in Asia to know how this happened and what we know about uh, tea in the Asian culture before it left this area of the world and traveled to other parts. Uh, tea have, um, has a very long history in Asia. And if you look at the myths, uh, they say tea drinking goes back to 5,000 years uh, back in time. But 
if you look at more modern history, it's um, it suggested that uh, tea was a fairly common uh, crop in the Tang Dynasty, fourth century to eighth, ninth century uh, China. That's where we find the first examples of uh, widespread cultivation of tea shrubs and harvest, and also, as we assume, a fairly common uh, consumer habit of, of consuming tea. Um, and having said that, it's also worth pointing out that we're, so we're in China, but um, and tea spread, but only in a quite limited way. Uh, so we have tea uh, consumption and cultivation in Japan and in Korea. But aside from that, um, tea wasn't cultivated outside these areas. Yeah. Why did people drink tea? What was the origin of people identifying this as a beverage? Well, it's um, associated with Buddhism and meditation and staying awake, uh, which it accidentally is the same thing actually with coffee. Uh, in, in, a, in um, Muslim cultures. Um, so we have like tea and coffee, they both contain caffeine, of course, that was only identified as an active ingredient in the 19th century, but everyone noticed that you uh, were able to stay awake uh, and alert when after having had tea or coffee. So it has religious connotations. Um, but we also know that uh, it was it as it became widespread across cultures in the Indian Ocean, like for example in on the Indian Peninsula, um, we find merchant communities uh, there uh, drinking tea regularly. So it was quite of a widespread use of tea in all kind of uh, parts of society. Yeah. Um, I don't have numbers on it, but um, we have accounts, for example, by um, early uh, European merchants who traded in Indian Ocean and uh, and who sort of makes observation about it, about tea drinking. Um, so European sources sort of identify tea drinking in 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 medieval uh, periods in 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 around the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. And back in these days, we didn't have tea in Europe. We didn't have coffee. We didn't have chocolate. What a sad life, you could say. <laughs> so how did the tea arrive in, in Europe? And who brought it here? Well, tea becomes a, a very important trade goods in the 18th century. But of course, already earlier on in the, in the 17th century, we find the first um, signs of uh, tea in Europe. And it made its way to Europe on ships uh, belonging to the different East India companies. Um, And at this time, there were two major companies uh, operating in Europe. That was the Dutch and the English East India companies. Uh, And they worked in slightly different ways. So the Dutch East India Company was by far the, the, the largest and dominated the trade. It centered uh, much of its operation in, in today's Indonesia and uh, in Batavia, uh, today's Jakarta. And this is also the place where Chinese merchants brought goods including tea. Uh, So tea started to arrive in in great quantities to Europe with the Dutch East India Company. Uh, The English East India Company um, had most of its bases on the Indian Peninsula, from which it started to import tea, again brought to India with different merchants. Um, The turning point in the trade where it really started to take off was around 1700, when direct trade with Chinese ports were established. 
And over time, the main port in this context was uh, Canton, uh, Guangzhou, uh, that um, the Qing, Qing dynasty, they, they only invited Europeans traders to use this port as their main port. And it's in Canton or Guangzhou that we see the, the, the really sort of big trade with, with tea developing. Um, and that starts uh, around sort of from the 1720s, it takes off. Uh, and uh, it's, it's very much uh, competition between different East India companies. Um, by this time, we also have a French company uh, and, in a, and a Danish and a Swedish company that also starts trading directly with, with Canton. Um, what was the value of the tea then? What did people trade it against? Did they buy it for money or did they trade it against other goods? They, well, this, is, this was the, the problem with the East India trade um, from a European point of view. Uh, Europeans had very little to offer Chinese um, merchants in return for the goods that they were interested in. So Europeans wanted, aside from tea, they wanted porcelain, they wanted silk textiles, uh, among other things. But these were the three main important sort of goods. Um, the Chinese uh, merchants uh, were less interested in, in, in European goods, but what Europe could offer was silver. Uh, and from this point, of, from this point of view, we're looking at this. We can we can see this as part of a global trade because most of the silver that was sort of floating around in Europe um, had come from America, America, and from Peru, for example, where uh, Spanish invaders and colonizers had been able to uh, exploit uh, and extract silver. Uh, with, the, with the help of indigenous population. This silver was brought to Europe and then again brought to Asia and to China particularly and was used um, to trade uh, these goods with. I, I imagine this time to be very rough. It was took a long time for people to transport things by, by sea. How long would it take from China to Europe for a boat to arrive with, with tea? And how did the tea need to be like wrapped so that it would be good? What kind of tea actually arrived here? This is all maritime trade. What develops um, is a very regular type of trade where ships would set out from uh, Europe um, in December, January, uh, February, uh, and then they would go down uh, sort of westward towards the Brazilian co coast, pick up winds that would bring them down uh, around Africa uh, in time for the monsoon winds that would bring them up uh, in again in sort of uh, northeastern direction. And then they would arrive to Guangzhou uh, in August, September, and they would spend the autumn uh, having the ships loaded with goods uh, to leave again then around Christmas uh, and arrive back in Europe in the summer. So all in all, it took regularly between 18 months to two years to make this uh, return journey. Um, and the main type of tea um, that was traded at this time was a black quality called bohia tea. Uh, it's the cheapest of the teas and again it says something about the extent to which tea had become a very popular, um, very sort of common consumer goods in Europe. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a low quality black tea that makes up between 85 to 90 percent of all the tea that's brought to Europe. And typically Bohia tea was packed in, in, in large boxes. Um, and in fact, it's interesting because the size of the tea boxes become like a standard measurement. So if you uh, move house in England, uh, where most of the tea ended up, uh, you, you have sort of removing companies offering you boxes that are the size of the tea boxes that were used at least in the 19th century. Uh, 
So the 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 cheapest kind of tea arrived in these huge boxes, um, but more exclusive, more expensive tea was packed in in smaller boxes uh, and in in small metal uh, boxes. Uh, so depending on the the value of the tea, uh, how exclusive it was, um, then that decided how you packed it. Um, but it was a an enormously sort of big logistical uh, sort of operation to uh, trade with so much tea. Um, I looked at the Danish and the Swedish trade with tea and they had, I found, so if you take these two companies who between them supplied about um, a third of all the tea that arrived to Europe in the, in the 18th century, uh, if the year that they together brought in most of the tea, um, it constituted around 800 tons of, of tea, most of it black tea. So if you were to put all those boxes on top of one another, um, they would have reached um, up in the sky uh, up to, I think, 22 times the Eiffel Tower. So this gives you an idea about how, how much tea arrived to Europe. Um, That was a lot of tea. And you mentioned uh, when we talked a little bit before starting the recording, the maritime route was not the only way of tea to arrive to Europe. There was another way of tea um, travel and tr tea trade. Yeah. So uh, the, the maritime route was the one that, uh, well, it's sort of important to, to realize how, how complex the trading world of the Indian Ocean was and the sort of Chinese, South Chinese Sea. This is, this is an area of the world where a, a lot of trade did take place on, on route, on, on, the, on, on the sea, on sea routes. But of course, there was also other forms of, of, of land-based trade. And we know about the silk routes uh, connecting sort of China to the Middle East and to Europe, uh, going back many thousands of years. Uh, if you look at particularly at uh, tea, this was also transported on 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 the many routes that we together and only since the sort of late 19th century called the silk routes. But um, in this case, they I mean you could obviously bring much less tea this way if you had to carry it, uh, but it also meant that the tea was processed in a different way. So here we find examples of what's called brick tea, which is highly condensed um, sort of bricks, um, the size of, of bricks we use to make houses from, uh, that was sort of that, that people could carry. So in contrast to the loose tea that was put in chests and brought onto ships, this was highly compressed tea that, that then you could take a little bit off and you could sort of boil it in water and, and produce something that, um, well, that was another version of tea. Uh, we can also see how, just by looking at the different names for tea, how tea moved. Uh, so in countries which have been trading tea on the maritime route, um, as well as in countries where you buy tea that's been traded on the maritime route, tea is called tea. But uh, elsewhere, tea is called shy. Uh, and that indicates that the tea has um, has been sort of coming to these cultures and these language areas uh, via via the land route rather than the maritime route. That's very interesting. Why why did that happen? Is this because it has traveled through different countries where it got a different name? Yeah, I mean that's the assumption that so the the goods the the name would would travel with the goods and if it use different routes, uh, then you could see a, a diversion in, in, in the nomenclature. Uh, having said that, I think Portugal is the only country which used shy for tea. But Portugal, of course, was the one of the first, it was the first European country to establish trade in the Indian Ocean world. Uh, so thus, perhaps, that we have this um, connection between the name, a different connection between the names uh, mm -hmm. and the routes. What happened to Europe and to European society when tea and also coffee uh, arrived to Europe? How did people perceive this? Who were the people drinking tea and did they need to 
to learn to brew it? Did they all already like like it immediately? What do we know about that? Uh, well, tea um, initially, as well as coffee and chocolate, by, by the way, were were reached Europe in the early modern period. Um, initially, uh, it was an elite drink beverage. It was also introduced uh, in many contexts as a medicine. Um, so it had medical connotations. It was used to cure different types of illnesses. Uh, this famous um, Dutch um, uh, doctor called Cornelius Bontekoe, who highly recommended tea uh, um, as, as the medicine that would cure every disease, basically. Some people suspect that he'd been paid off by the Dutch East India Company because he recommended people to drink up to 10, even more cups of tea every day. And of course, this was the type of consumption that only very rich people yeah, could afford. Uh, and it's also in, within a context in which, relatively speaking, only quite very little tea actually existed in Europe. Uh, but with these massive trade that developed um, as direct trade was established with, with China and by a, a growing number of East India Company, tea became accessible and quite cheap. Uh, and it takes off, tea consumption takes off, um, particularly in the Dutch Republic and in Britain. Um, and we can explain this in different ways. Um, when it comes to Britain, it's important to realize uh, or take into account their, the way that tea was taxed, um, but also how the market for tea worked. So the English East India Company, as most of the companies operating, um, trading with Asia, they had a monopoly over goods that were brought from Asia to, to in this case, Britain. So they were the only one that were allowed to trade on a wholesale basis uh, with these goods. Um, and as, the, as British consumers became, sort of developed this first for tea, um, the British authorities realized this is a, a great revenue for, for, for tax. Uh, so they um, made it mandatory for the English East India Company to keep a year's worth of consumption of tea in store in London because of the, the fiscal revenues that this sort of provided the British state with. Some people say that, that this, this um, income for the state uh, uh, financed the, the British Navy, which, which expanded greatly in the 18th century. So um, there is a connection between tax system and uh, and sort of why certain cultures, certain countries um, drink more tea than others. Does that explain as well why we are more coffee drinking uh, country here in Sweden? That uh, how, yeah, how did the tea come to Sweden and why did it <laughs> seemingly not uh, have a real chance against coffee? <laughs> yeah, the, it's interesting because Sweden had its own East India Company um, from 1731 and onwards. Um, and we can, we, can, we can see that with the new company, which traded from Göteborg, tea consumption becomes more widespread, uh, as did coffee, by the way. But even in the 18th century, it seems like coffee is the drink that Swedish people prefer. Um, I don't have a good explanation for it. Uh, the only sort of way we can use trade routes um, to explain coffee uh, goes back, you have to go to the 19th century in order to do that. And that is when um, British, no, Swedish uh, merchants um, brought um, iron and steel over to America. And then instead of going back with empty ships, they went down to Brazil and filled up with coffee. So from sort of, 1840s, 50s, um, 
Sweden see um, a, a huge sort of import of, of coffee uh, on on that on ships that do this sort of triangle triangle trade with with Brazil. Um, this is also a period when the Swedish economy sort of develops uh, and and becomes bigger, uh, so more people can afford coffee. Um, but why why Swedish people didn't start drinking more tea in the 18th century is still a mystery to me, and I studied this for quite a quite a while. <laughs> can I just? I mean, even if it was so that they drank more coffee, the difference was not so big as later in the 18th century if i have understood this correctly so i i, I also think it is interesting how 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 it's happened or how it developed so that coffee became so dominant because also uh, uh, bearing in mind that we actually had bans on coffee for some periods during the um late 18th and early, early 19th century yeah, so the government. I mean, if you if you go by the coffee bans, which were were in all five coffee bans, uh, the first one in the 1750s and the last one in the eight, 1920s, um, those bans suggest that that coffee was the, the choice that of of the people. Uh, so yeah, that's a good argument for for, for and a good indication that coffee was was what people preferred. When we go a bit to the different types of tea, that may also relate to this, like what, what taste did people like? Um, we have now today, we can drink white tea and green tea and black tea. Basically, they all come from the same plant. How, how was that back then in the days? Was it mostly black tea that was uh, transported and that was consumed in Europe? And when did other types of tea, um, differently processed types of tea, arrive? Uh, uh, well, there are so yeah. Most tea in the nineteen, in the twenty, no, sorry, in the eighteenth century was was black tea, um, and there is a big price difference between. The cheapest black tea, the bohia tea, and more exclusive uh, green teas. Um, and the reason why black tea becomes popular has to do with the fact that it was more, it was easier to transport, so it it, it kept better uh, over. Like you could store it for a longer time without it losing its taste. So that's the this sort of classic argument for or explanation for why black tea was what Europeans preferred. Uh, but there was always a sort of a, an exclusive, more exclusive market for um, green teas in, in Europe. Uh, and you can see initially when tea was introduced, it was often introduced within court contexts. Uh, with time, it became um, sort of a goods that you can, you can go to tea shops in London and buy. And initially those tea shops would be for very elite customers and you would sit by the counter and you would have a blend of tea leaves tried out uh, to your taste. So you would have a very sort of specific type of blend for your, for your own preferences that would match your own preferences. But over time, and particularly as this sort of mass market for tea developed, uh, then it, it would come more pre-packaged, uh, although a fair amount of blending did take place on, on a wholesale market base. Uh, but what and and blending tea is a, is a very complex process, uh, and you need expertise, knowledge to do it. Uh, so uh, it's it it also reflects how sort of specialized and differentiated the market for tea was at a very early stage, uh, more so than what, what I can understand for how the coffee market worked, where there would be, for example, you typically in the 18th and early 19th century, Arabic coffee from the Middle East would be the, the preferred coffee, the coffee beans that were sort of thought of as having the best quality. And uh, with 
um, coffee from the from Indonesia, from Java being the second place, and West Indian coffee being the third and lowest ranked coffee. Uh, but across but across time, you can see again here very specialized markets developing, uh, and particularly in the nineteenth century for coffee. You have been studying all this, Hannah, and I'm wondering where how do you study this is this in old books or how how do you find out how things were so many years ago oh it's um i think um, there, there are there are actually existing um uh, catalogs so you can uh, auction catalogs where you can study how these sort of great um, huge amounts of tea were traded Uh, in Gutenberg. So it's a very uh, kind of a unique series of, of sales catalogs that covers uh, the Swedish trade with um, with uh, Chinese goods. So that's one source and it's actually accessible from uh, web pages where you can you can sort of go and read and you can annotate it so you can see who bought these um, great amount of tea. Um, but then, uh, and this is not the case for the Swedish company uh, because the way it was set up Uh, it was quite a secret business and they burned all their accounts. But in many other cases, like for, for example, with the Danish East India Company and the English East India Company and the Dutch East India Company, you, um, you have the company records, which are a vast type of source material. They, they would write um, for each expedition as they would call it, they'll, they'll write down every information, the orders they get from the head companies, what to buy, a sort of diary that would cover the journey. And then again, a diary that would cover who they traded with, copies of all the contracts they wrote, the different Chinese merchants in Canton. And again, back <laughs> to Europe, they would write, they write uh, a, a, like a, a diary for, for, for the journey, noting down the winds and the Um, and the weather and anything else happening on the ship. So that's another type of, of source material. And that's a, a type which um, historians have been working on for a long time. It's such a, often we talk about huge archives. So you, you need to, you need to be many historians to cover uh, this kind of uh, source material. The third type, which I've been working on a lot is correspondence uh, between merchants who were involved in the trade. Uh, quite often they would they trade uh, like they would represent the East India Company. There would be what's called supercargos uh, who would be in charge of of the trade in in Canton. So they would be personally responsible for sort of writing contracts and making sure that the the affairs of the of the company would be sort of well kept and and well executed. But um, The, they would also often have like a private trade on the side. So they'll take orders from elite customers in, in Europe for special types of sort of silk dresses or um, for uh, porcelain with special designs. Uh, and this type of orders would be very lucrative. And then they will also trade with a lot of common goods like tea. Mm -hmm. uh, so merchant, merchant families, often they would have like one member of the family going on the ship, a uh, second one being um, a wholesaler operating, for example, from Göteborg. And then they would sometimes often also be engaged in smuggling um, of different goods because, as I said, there was this monopoly. Um, but you can go get around the monopoly by sort of smuggling goods and selling them and because you don't have to pay the taxes, uh, then you, you can sort of make quite a huge profit. So, um, so that's a, a really interesting, um, you can get really interesting insights from how the trade worked by, by looking at the correspondence. And between these types of sources, I think you can get quite a good idea about how the trade worked. Is even the smuggling documented? Uh, in it's in a sort of discreet sort of way, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Read between the lines. <laughs> yes, I mean, there, there. Um, you can sort of, you can, if you know, for example, why 
quite a few Scottish merchants were involved in the Swedish East India Company and in the smuggling. And they would uh, become Swedish subjects because then they could ensure the goods that they sent over as neutral goods, which during periods of warfare would make the insurance cheaper. Uh, so you can you can you can sort of understand the logic of the of the smuggling. You can see the smuggling if you know how the how the system worked. You can you can sort of read between the lines. Yeah. That is so interesting and such a such like a fascinating way and exciting way of studying to go back like a detective into the <laughs> past and identify how things worked. I have some questions to Annika here as well, because she has been studying the relationship uh, or the, the Linné family and tea was part of um, their time as well, because it arrived to Sweden during Linné's lifetime and he gave tea its name. And uh, yeah, what more do we know about Linné and the tea? Yes, we know some more things. Uh, uh, he, for example, um, published a, dissert a dissertation about the tea in 1765. Uh, the, the system was, was that there was a, a student uh, defending this, this, this dissertation or thesis, but uh, he wrote them uh, most of the times. Uh, and he also uh, talked about tea in his lectures, particularly in dietetics. Uh, but then also the Linnaeus household consumed tea and coffee and chocolate, probably chocolate at least. We, I'm sure of tea, tea and coffee. Uh, so um, there is a relation, so to say, between uh, Linnaeus, the Linnaean family, the household and tea. And this is, I would say, rather typical considered the, um, the uh, uh, type of elite they belong to because as Hannah also said it was an elite consumption for a start it did become become more widespread because it became a bit cheaper uh, but uh, still uh, in the mid 18th century it was fashionable to drink tea uh, and to have uh, like a reception uh, or, or a party where you actually serve tea uh, and not so much else perhaps is uh, a fashionable habit but this aspect also of uh, both the tea, coffee and chocolate as medicines is very um, interesting to Linnaeus. And in the dissertation, he describes all the medical qualities that tea has. When we look back into the household, what kind of items do we find that suggest that they have been drinking tea? Well, we have um, uh, uh, quite a lot of things actually. Uh, there is uh, the probate inventories of the family. They are lists that they made when, when someone died, uh, listing all their belongings that they had at the time of death. Uh, and uh, if we look at both Colonel's uh, uh, senior and uh, his wife and his oldest daughter and his uh, oldest son when they died, uh, uh, they have uh, uh, items uh, uh, connected to tea consumption. And particularly, perhaps Linnaeus uh, Senior, Carl Linnaeus Senior, I think it's got like nine different tables, which is labeled tea table something. They are, some are a bit bigger, some are a bit smaller. Uh, and also uh, we know because it actually exists still, and there is some correspondence around this, that they had a, um, a porcelain tea set ordered from China. As Hannah said, uh, noble families and elite could order specially designed uh, uh, objects from China and from the uh, manufacturers in Canton, and so did the Linnaeus family. Uh, and this, um, they have both uh, uh, cups for, for coffee and tea drinking uh, in this set, and it is decorated with the twin flower, which was an emblem to him of course so it was symbolically a, a quite important thing this and and actually he, he got one set uh, uh, sent from china and uh, it turned out that the design of the flowers were not good enough so the the shape and the color were not uh, satisfactory so he was not happy with this and he had another set 
uh, ordered. So it came twice. <laughs> <laughs> and probably took uh, 18 months to get to him. <laughs> it did, yes. <laughs> uh, and also, I mean, of course, when, when, um, when you transport this rather fragile type of uh, goods for, for such a, a long distance, it does break. So when it arrives, everything is not is not uh, you know in good shape some is always broken mm -hmm. and Linnea had also an interest in trying to grow tea plants so uh, we have heard a lot that it took a long time to get the tea um, to Europe and why not try growing it here so what do we know about his um, ex experiments to try to grow tea and how did he get hold of tea plants Yes, he, he was interested in, in trying to, well, he had, a, you could say, maybe a, a sort of parallel interest here, because he both wanted to try to grow the property in Sweden. Uh, and this has got to do with, with the sort of general um, uh, economic movement in Sweden uh, and uh, utilitarianism and the fact that you, they tried to produce uh, what you needed for lux luxury consumption in Sweden, so you didn't have to import it. Uh, so for that reason, it is interesting to be able to grow tea here. But there is another way to solve this, and that is substitutions. You can also, you know, think of ways of substituting the uh, proper tea uh, for something else that actually grows here. Uh, and so they tried to, to, you know, make brew tea from other plants as well. And that was also an interest of Linnaeus. But these the tea plants that he wanted to uh, get from China, and the, the, the thing was that he he wanted to to, to get the actual living plants, and then uh, they did that on the East India Company ships, and they tried three times. I, I think the first time it fell overboard, these plants, and the second time, uh, the the roots were eaten by mice, so it died before it arrived. But the third time, a number of plants did arrive first to. To Gothenburg, and then, as far as I understand, the wife of the captain of this ship had to travel on land with it, so they didn't risk, you know, to put it on another ship because normally you would probably uh, have another ship going around to Stockholm or something. But this time, she she went on land, traveling with these plants, and they did arrive in Uppsala, and some survived, not very many, uh, for some time. So he could probably observe them and. Uh, maybe they could harvest some leaves, I don't know, but there was never any, you know, any Swedish tea production to speak of. Mm -hmm. What were the other plants that he tried to replace the tea with? Well, I think uh, Hanna knows more about this, but they, they did try with the Linnea borealis, I think. But Yeah, yeah. so the, the twin flower, ironically, perhaps, because... He used them as decorations for on his on his uh, imported tea set, like which he paid, I assume, a fair amount for. But um, the substitution, which the whole idea, as Annika said, the whole idea with, with substitution was to reduce import, to have a positive uh, sort of trade balance, um, and um, it, under that flag or within that context, uh, Linnaeus, together with other um, people in Sweden, was were trying to develop substitutes uh, for tea, as well as coffee and chocolate, actually. Uh, but they were most optimistic about tea. <laughs> and uh, they used, uh, um, well, Linnaeus, in, he went uh, on one of his uh, longer sort of Swedish trips or journeys when he went westwards. He describes in the printed travel account from 1746 that he encountered this um, tea that looked like uh, tea bohia, and it also it smelled like it. It tasted it at least. He said someone who's not used to the real thing would accept this as a tea taste. But he also talks about how the the leaves were sort of as they were um, it's infused in water, they, they behaved like tea leaves, uh, how they sort of um, looked like tea leaves in, in water. Uh, so in some contexts, he's very, he's quite optimistic about this substitution project, but in other contexts, he, he doesn't, he sort of expresses 
quite a lot of skepticism around the plans. Instead, I think he's he really hoped and believed uh, in the possibility of of, of of growing tea in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And here he was inspired by how coffee had been um, relocated um, because coffee was uh, coffee plants were sort of transported first to Asia and then to the West Indies and were sort of successfully um, relocated uh, and used, of course, then in a slave-based economy to produce coffee for uh, European European consumers. So that was his sort of prototype. Um, And he had loads of ideas about tea growing uh, in cold areas uh, similar to the Swedish climate, and it should work, was his uh, assumption. And and you, you could also mention that they did other similar projects or had other similar projects like uh, silk. So they tried, and, and actually, I think that was a bit more successful. They had mulberry trees and, and they had that in different locations in Sweden because of this acclimatization problem. So uh, in Gotland, for example, and in Skåne, and, and I think at Drottningholm as well. So mm-hmm. they, they had mulberry trees and they did actually manage to produce some Swedish uh, silk thread and, and uh, uh, silk fabric from that. So uh, that was the same type of, of, of project. So they had uh, uh, various, you know, uh, efforts like this. Mm-hmm. But, but again, um, the most successful was tobacco plantations yes, in yes, Sweden yes, in the 18th century, where, where like tobacco was um, in in the early 18th century, it was the goods that that was the, the biggest sort of um, import. Uh, the, if you see what pe- Swedish people bought from abroad, tobacco was number one. Um, but over time, the tobacco import uh, decreased because of tobacco plantations um, being sort of instigated around, across Sweden. Uh, so that was the most successful of these sort of plant transfer projects. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, the, the trade of plants has been very difficult at that time because, the, as you mentioned, the travels were very long and the water was salty in the sea and it was maybe cold and warm. And it was only a bit later that people developed small greenhouses to travel or to make plants travel to different destinations and then it was still difficult to maybe root them there and let them grow out in the in the wild with a different climate i know i mean you can see like so linnaeus was really well connected and he was um he was you know a a node in the botanical network of, of the 18th century but um if you see how naturalists operated in 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 states which had more of a colonial um, sort of stretch like France and Britain they used um, botanical gardens across the world to move plants in between so you can see um, Leo's Ella Linnea being sort of avant-garde in in trying to move these plants uh, and he was not like the plant transfer was a sort of common, common, for, common, common enough. But um, with time, the methods became more sophisticated, and the ne- networks more integrated in sort of colonial imperial contexts. Mm-hmm. Annika, did you have something? Yeah, to I, th- I thought about. I mean, um, all these um, uh, like commodities we've been talking about: silk and coffee and tea and and tobacco and and chocolate and so. Uh, they they were taxed in Sweden also, so there were like some true laws and, and regulations. So they were since they were imported and considered luxury commodities, they were taxed, and that's also one way we actually can we know that the Linnaeus household uh, consumed tea and coffee and most likely chocolate because those taxes were paid by the university. So in the university archives, you can find the information on on uh, how much they paid. Uh, different years for uh, for those taxes, so because of that, we I mean not only did they have all the the uh, necessary equipment uh, for the consumption, but they also actually paid those taxes. So we can be quite sure that they consumed uh, tea and coffee and most likely chocolate. And even three hundred years later, people in Sweden are trying to grow tea. 
<laughs> I know of a, a project in uh, in Gotland where people try to grow tea and to make uh, local tea production. So uh, I find this fascinating uh, and um, very encouraging also to not give up. There may be a way <laughs> to, to get it done, <laughs> to have uh, Swedish-grown tea. Yeah, I have uh, some last questions here. Um, to Hannah, you are involved in a project that is called Intoxicating Spaces. Can you tell us a little more about that project and what we can learn about it and how people can visit the outcomes of that? Yeah, uh, so this is um, a project that's been funded by um, a European uh, type of funding called HERA, H-E-R-A, uh, Humanities in European Research Area. And this project um, was uh, um, constituted a, a part of a network uh, in which we collaborated with researchers uh, at Oldenburg University uh, and researchers uh, at uh, the Utrecht University and in uh, Sheffield. And we were together, we were sort of studying and comparing the consumption of what um, we in the project call intoxicants, but it's a fairly well-established uh, sort of category uh, that include uh, these new exotic goods that arrived to Europe uh, in the early modern period. Um, so aside from tea, coffee, tobacco, uh, sugar, uh, uh, opium, so psychoactive uh, substances that uh, the brain reacts to. So these new goods, the, the sort of starting point is, uh, shaped how Europeans and changed how Europeans behaved and socialized. Uh, and people, um, this has been studied in different types of ways. So for example, we tend to think about uh, caffeine-induced drinks as important for conversations in sort of enlightenment context, for the sort of polite conversations, uh, conversations taking place in, 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 in public spaces like coffee houses. Um, and this, of course, is true, but it's also worth pointing out that coffee houses were rarely <laughs> without alcohol. So you, they, they would have been places where, where you would have been drinking uh, alcohol as well as coffee and you've been smoking. And they were uh, often kind of un unruly uh, environments. Uh, and the point with the project is to investigate sort of how intoxicants shaped urban life uh, in, in Stockholm, in Hamburg and Amsterdam and London, uh, looking at different sort of places and different type of agents. Um, I studied uh, women uh, who were <clears throat> selling coffee illegally in the 1790s uh, when the Swedish government was trying to reduce import uh, of coffee in order to um, improve the trade balance uh, and it's been really exciting to see how uh, kind of category of people that you don't expect take the initiative um, poor women women with small children who took the opportunity to make money uh, selling coffee uh, it was sort of associated with risks you had to pay a lot of fines uh, but it could be quite lucrative uh, so that is the sort of things that we've been studying in the project. Uh, and we have a web page um, and we'll have um, a launch of the web page. Uh, I don't think the date's set, uh, but sometime in April. Um, and it's, it'll include an exhibition where we sort of show source material from our, our four different cities. Uh, so you can compare coffee drinking in the, the, the four different cities, for example, and, and tea drinking as well. Wonderful. Can I just uh, uh, sort of add <laughs> or comment that I think it is really interesting that these um, um, uh, commodities or uh, also uh, toxic plants or subjects sometimes, it, it does 
it, it did change people's behavior, I think, quite a lot. And I mean, just look at how we consume these things today. I, of course, there is a, a big change. But I also think it's quite interesting when you look at sources like the dissertations of Linnaeus or the lecture notes of Linnaeus, that that probably also kind of supported that kind of change, or maybe sometimes it actually is, is driving the change also, uh, because he is describing quite often how these uh, beverages used to be considered luxuries, but in, in his time, they are not anymore, because it's been so widespread. And, and uh, th there might be risks uh, connected to consuming them. His, 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 often you know describing the risks and how or the, the bad sides of the of the coffee or the tea or or so but he says that it has it's it's you know it's developed so much and it's so common today and and people don't sort of care about those rational arguments anymore they will consume it anyway and it's quite an it's quite a we say modern approach to consumption you it know it's, it's sort of we can we can take in that argument so mm. in a sense uh these new intoxicants sort of uh, made us modern in the way we think about consumption compared with earlier periods. I think this is uh, bringing also this cultural aspect in of how, how the tea and the coffee and other intoxicants have changed our lifestyle. And uh, I don't think that we are always aware of that, but going into a tea house today where you can eat cake and drink coffee or tea, all of that wasn't possible before tea and coffee and sugar um, arrived in 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 Europe or in yeah wherever country you basically live, and that is something that is related to this um, trade. If people wanted to know more about tea and coffee and the story beyond the online exposition, where could they find out more? Do you have um, books to recommend, uh, museums to recommend, also the story about Linné and, uh, and the tea? Where can we learn more? Um, well, I can <laughs> recommend the book I've written, <laughs> which uh, covers the... Swedish trade with tea and silk, and where I um, sort of point to the the huge uh, imports, but also the substitution projects. And it's called Silk and Tea in the North, Scandinavian Trade and the Market of Asian Goods in 18th Century Europe. Um, and while I could recommend also people going and see the web page, um, of the trade catalogues for the Swedish East India Company. They're quite quite fascinating. You get a sense of how how developed this trade was. Because I think it's it's easy to just assume, oh, this is olden days, it must have been very sort of primitive, but it's actually a very sophisticated trade. Uh, and they are online. So if people Google um, Swedish East India sales catalogue, they'll they'll find them. And when it comes to Linnaeus and the Linnaeus family and tea, you, the, the uh, dissertation about tea is translated into Swedish, as well as the coffee and chocolate one and several others. It's the Swedish Linnaeus Society that translates and publishes those, uh, so you can buy them if you want to, borrow them in the library uh, or so and read them. Uh, and that's they are not, I mean, they are not like um, a, a PhD thesis today, so they are like 20 pages long or so so it's not a, a, a long text and they are really interesting to read so i recommend that uh, and you can also of course go in the Linnaeus museum in Uppsala or to Linnaeus Hammarby uh, they are open during the warm season um, from 1st of may i think uh, and in uh, in town in the Linnaeus museum there is a tea table for example and uh, the parts of the uh, Linnaea borealis uh, tea and coffee chinaware set and also at Hammarby, you can find these, uh, some of these cups uh, uh, and a coffee table, more likely, actually, is uh, uh, exhibited at Hammarby. But and at Hammarby, there are also two uh, tins that prob probably contained tea, metal tins. Uh, they probably belonged to Linnaeus uh, uh, Filius, to the sun, but they are on exhibition there. Wonderful. Plenty of possibilities to learn more about tea and coffee as well. Uh, where people, where can people find you? 
I work at the Department for History of Ideas and History of Science at Uppsala University. Uh, that's where I'm located. And I work at Uppsala University and Uppsala University Library as Visitors Coordinator, so I think you would be able to find me via the web page. Thank you very much, Hannah and Annika, for sharing all of your um, knowledge on tea. And uh, it was a it was a very interesting time travel for me from Asia to Sweden and to understand how the tea has come here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And if you did so, please share it. And if you're listening from a platform where you can leave a review or a ranking, I would be delighted to get a five-star review from you. This will help the podcast to be found and make even more people aware of how wonderful nature around us is. If you would like to be updated on future episodes, subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify or Google Podcast or whatever your favorite podcast provider is. Or register for our newsletter at www.flora-l.com. Thank you and goodbye.